I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know the first thing about sales and marketing. So, you know, I started a YouTube channel as a way to try to get discovered. But for me, the big thing that really made it take off was a really good evergreen sales funnel that I implemented in 2016. I mean, that was that was the real key. And just adding a really good sales funnel was what allowed us to go from around a thousand dollars a month consistently to around ten thousand dollars a month. So just that one thing, like 10x our business just about overnight and really made it take off. Jacques Hopkins will be the first to tell you he's not a piano virtuoso, but that didn't stop him from launching a profitable online piano course. His Piano in 21 Days course has brought in as much as $145,000 in a single month, with an average revenue of around $40,000 a month, enough that he quit his day job as an engineer in 2015 and hasn't looked back. I'm your host, Alex Freeman, and on today's episode, I'm learning Jacques' secrets to starting a successful online course. If you're a struggling course creator yourself, you'll be heartened to know Jacques wasn't a hit from day one. We'll hear what he struggled with at the beginning, how he unlocked his course's full revenue potential, and what strategies he uses today to keep his business growing. Jacques Hopkins, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks, Alex. I appreciate the opportunity. So to get started, can you share when and why you started Piano in 21 Days? The genesis of it would be when I read a book that's become quite popular. I read this book this my senior year of college back around 2008, and it's called The 4-Hour Workweek. And the big thing for me about that book was it was a complete paradigm shift for me with what it meant to be an entrepreneur. I had no interest in that before reading that book, but reading about all the really cool things that Tim Ferriss was able to do with his life by running an online business, outsourcing was just a, a game changer for me in the mindset behind being an entrepreneur. And so after reading that book, I tried several business ventures. None were online courses until I, I think it was my seventh idea for like a, an online business of some sort was an online piano course. And that's the first one that even made a dollar for me. And what was the, what was your background before getting the course started? You know, did you have experience teaching music before you launched it? You might think so, because I teach piano now on the internet, but no, I had no, uh, I had no previous experience teaching piano at all. I was an electrical engineer. Uh, after reading that book, I already had my job lined up. So I went to work as an engineer. I did that for eight years, all the while trying to figure out something that could work on my own. It's just that like piano was one of my hobbies and I had my own unique way of playing piano. And I just, I just thought, you know, when I got the idea for, for piano, I just, I was like, maybe other people want to learn this way, but I had zero experience teaching music in any way, shape or form. In fact, if you would have told me, you know, shortly before that time that one day your career would be teaching people piano, I'd have thought you were absolutely insane. When you were getting started or trying to get those courses launched, you know, I, I think all of us have this moment where the idea of it then suddenly meets the reality. What was the biggest misconception that you had about starting an online course before you actually did it? And then what's the reality there? And, and when and how did you discover that? For me, I was listening to a lot of podcasts that, at the time. I was reading I was reading books, but mostly listening to podcasts. And, you know, the, the really big success stories are the ones they, they would have on the podcast. And so that's all I would hear is these people would make an online course and they'd launch it. And all of a sudden they had like a million dollars in their bank account. And I was like, okay, well, if I make an online course, that's going to happen for me as well, because I haven't heard any story that, that doesn't play out that way. So the biggest misconception would be the whole idea of if you build it, they will come. But as it turns out, I just like I didn't really know what I was doing. I built it, but I didn't know the first thing about sales or marketing or anything like that. And so I discovered that once I spent eight months just building the product and building the course in my spare time after work. And then when nobody actually bought it, I, I realized what I, kind of what I was missing. What what was that most difficult part of getting the course started? And and have you found any tricks to make that 
challenge easier? Spending all that time and launching a product and then it not really selling at first was a huge challenge, but slowly but surely we did make it work very slowly over time. But another big challenge that I wasn't really expecting or prepared for, but I feel like I'm better prepared for now is, is, is the trolls and haters. People just love to leave you negative comments on, on the internet sometimes. Uh, and what I've found is the best way to handle that is you can, one, you can look at it as a good thing because usually you have to find some level of success out there to even garner attention from those types of people. But the other thing that we do is we, we keep a running like list and, and database of the positive things people say about us and, and the course as well. And so anytime like trolls or haters give me down. I always reference back to the to the positive things because we because we know we're having a positive impact on other people with our piano course. When you first launched, where did you publish the course? And is that where, still where you publish courses today? You know, that was a big challenge. 2013 is when we launched and the landscape of what's possible with an online course today is a lot different than back then. So even having content in some password protected area was was figuring out how to do that was a big challenge back then. Whereas today you've got all kinds of options on where you could put a course. So I started with uh, a WordPress solution, used a plugin called Sensei at first, and then eventually switched to a different plugin called Optimize Press. Around 2016, there's a software that was all the rage called ClickFunnels that I moved my course onto. And then eventually I moved back to WordPress and used something called LearnDash. And now we are a, a big fan of Kajabi these days. So that's where we put our courses now is Kajabi. And then how long did it take for the course to become profitable or was it was it profitable right away? No, not profitable right away. To be profitable took about two years or so. And I mean, it depends on your definition of profitable too. To meet and exceed the level of income I was making at my job took about three years from the beginning. What's your average monthly revenue now and roughly what percentage of that is profit? On average, around $40,000 a month and about half of which, about $20,000 a month in profit. Quick note for our listeners, if you're looking for more interviews with business founders and owners, head over to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash upflip. What are some of those main costs for setting up and launching an online course? If someone's thinking about launching their course, what's kind of the minimum budget that they should maybe be planning for? So if you're plan if you're planning this out, I would recommend you have a budget, a minimum budget of $150 a month because what I would recommend you use is uh, is Kajabi. You know, that's what we've moved to. And there are other cheaper pieces of software that can host a course. But what I've found is that Kajabi allows you to do like everything you could possibly need to do with an online course business. So other software may seem cheaper from the from the outset, but maybe all it does is host your online course and you still need a place to build a website and, and build a sales funnel and send emails and things like that. And Kajabi kind of does all of it and in my opinion, does it really well. So from what I've seen, it's the best combination of features, user friendliness, their customer support is really good. And so you can run the entire online course business website, order forms, the program, you know, online course uh, itself, emails and so on all in that one place. So at a very minimum, I would say 150 a month for Kajabi. Can you talk us through that development process for your first course? How long did it take? And what were the what were the steps to developing the course? For me, that first version took about eight months in my spare time, you know, after work and on on uh, weekends for actual course creation, like we're going to create a course. The best thing to do is 
is you start with a vision of like who you're trying to serve, who that ideal customer is, and then what they're trying to accomplish, what their dream outcome is. And, and it has to be, you know, something you can help them achieve, obviously. And then write out all the different topics and, and steps it would take for somebody to go from, you know, where they are now to that, to that dream outcome. You know, you can, what I like to do is I like to take post-it notes out and write those things down and spread them out all over my table. Uh, and then group like things together. And then those can turn into your modules, like the like things, and then the individual things are your lessons. And then from there, what I like to do is either translate all that information to Google Docs or Google Slides and start fleshing out the details of each lesson. And so uh, I wish I would have done it that way at the beginning. I, I think it would have taken a lot less time and been even more effective. Then once you get to that point, you can you can record your course. Now, what exactly that looks like depends on what you teach. For example, when I'm teaching piano, I kind of have to be on camera. Me and my keyboard have to be on camera, but a lot of other topics and niches and things you can get away with just your voice with slides. I've seen that be very effective. So it, what it ends up looking like on the back end depends on what you're teaching as well. Now, your core course is now on, on version six. What are the, the main things you've changed or added from the original version and what prompted those changes? Yeah, we, I, you know, I can be kind of a perfectionist, so I'm always looking to get better uh, in in the various aspects of the business. But I would say when we when we go from one version to the next, there's three main things as to why we'd want to do that. First of all, is if I feel like there's a need to tweak the curriculum itself, and that's purely based on feedback that I receive from students. If we get the same question over and over again, well, maybe we should have done a better job of teaching that in the curriculum. Uh, so, for example, the biggest update uh, that we've made to the cr- curriculum right now has been the latest version coming from version five to six. And at that time, and this this would be a tip that I that I think is really, really helpful is to actually teach your curriculum to people live. And I did it on Zoom, even going from version five to version six, and I got real-time feedback and then was able to apply that feedback to version six. And I think it's by far our best version. And then the second thing is just our production value gets better. The very first version we did was one camera angle. It was a bad webcam, just overhead. My face wasn't in any of the shots. Now we're, we, we shoot with four cameras and in 4K. Uh, and then the, the third thing would be just improving the overall offer. So it's more than just a course. You know, the sixth version comes with a live weekly Q&A. We have bonus courses and so on. So the whole thing just gets better each time. Why do you think the the course didn't immediately sell well when you first launched it? And what did you change in 2016 that really made those sales take off? I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know the first thing about sales and marketing. So, you know, I started a YouTube channel as a way to try to get discovered. But for me, the big thing that really made it take off was a really good evergreen sales funnel that I implemented in 2016. I mean, that was that was the real key. It's from what I've seen, it's not the key for everybody. But for me, that was like the last missing piece in my business. And just adding a really good sales funnel was what allowed us to go from around $1,000 a month consistently to around $10,000 a month. So just that one thing, like 10x our business just about overnight and really made it take off. Can you talk us through that sales funnel and what that kind of looks like and what what are the, some of the key features that people should be including in their sales funnel for an online course? The key things, in my opinion, are really getting the person that's going through your funnel to believe two things. They need to believe that they can do it 
So in this case, like that they could actually learn piano, be playing songs on the piano. And the second thing that it needs to get them to believe is that this person in this program are the perfect way for me to be able to do it. So today we basically have an evergreen webinar funnel. We have a free five-day workbook right at the front that people opt in for. And then right after that, they're immediately prompted for a free webinar as well. And then in the webinar, because that's really where most of the sales happen, is I talk about my story and how I took traditional lessons for 12 years. And at the end of that, I looked up and I could literally only play two songs. I didn't even like those two songs. And so that story really gets people starting to believe that I'd be a great guide for them because they probably don't want to to waste time in the learning process like I did. And then after I get through my story, I walk them through at a pretty high level, just kind of my secret sauce to learning piano quickly, how I teach. And that really gets them believing that they could actually learn and learn quickly. And so I don't cover every last detail in in the training and the free part because then they won't have a need for my course, but I cover just enough to get them really believing that they can do this and all they need to do now is uh, is sign up for the course and it's going to help them achieve the goals that they have. When you're developing a course, how do you determine what those main things that a student's going to want from the course and then how do you go about making sure that you provide that in the course. I think the main thing that students want at the end of the day is some sort of of transformation. They want to go from whatever their current uh, situation is to some sort of outcome. And at the end of the day, that's what they're paying for is that transformation, not just whatever information is inside of your course. Because from my own experience, it, it's hard to sell generic piano lessons like, hey, come come buy my piano lessons for $800. But if instead I'm selling you the ability to play your favorite songs on the piano in as little as three weeks from right now without cheat music, without boring drills, and even if you've never touched a piano before... That's something that people will pay for and pay, you know, in my case, $800 for. And so I try to sell the transformation and the outcome, convey that well, and not just the features. And I think that's truly what people are looking for. Roughly what percentage of people who download your your free workbook end up then enrolling in the course? And, and what's the value of offering those free previews? So for us, it's it's between three and 4% of people end up converting to the paid course. And from what I've seen in other markets, that's that's pretty good. And so, like I said before, you're going to optimize sales if you get people truly believing those two things. I can do this and you know this person, this program are the perfect way for me to do it. And it's hard to get them believing those two things with just like a simple sales page, nothing else. And so by offering some free training, you know, in my case, a workbook and a webinar, it's part of what helps get people to believe those two things. And by offering like very high quality free content, it also gets people thinking like, well, how much better is is the paid the paid content going to be than than the free content if the free content is this good? What are some of the the best strategies for attracting students to a brand new online course? I mean, is it just those those free offerings that you can put out there or are there other strategies that someone should employ? It starts with your marketing channels and and today it's all about video. It could be longer form video like on YouTube or short form video like TikTok or Instagram Reels, but conveying elements of whatever makes you or your 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 niche unique, whatever it is that you have to teach, you know wh- what your special sauce is through some sort of social platform like that is a great way to start building that initial trust with the right people. And if you're going to do that, and if I could give one tip for doing that, that I see a lot of people get wrong would be if you're putting that free video content out there, and this doesn't matter if, if it's a 15 minute YouTube video or a 15 second TikTok, you have to make sure that you have a compelling hook in the first like three to five seconds 
And there's so much content out there on all the all those platforms, and you only have a few seconds to to rope someone in and keep their attention before they're moving on to the next thing. So anytime we're putting new content out there now, uh, what I do is I always pause it, pause the, the video after about three seconds uh, before we publish it. And I ask myself, is my ideal viewer hooked enough at the point where they're going to keep watching this video? I think anybody that's launching a course, there's, there's probably going to be at least one other course in that niche. So I'm curious about building out unique offerings. So what makes your course unique from other online piano courses and how, how has that helped you to grow your sales? For me, I would say there's three main things. First of all, it's me. And I don't mean to come across as egotistical because of that, because I think that that should be a reason for just about anyone's online course. You should put your own you know, personality and flair into it. But hopefully I've built up trust with someone that one of the reasons they end up signing up with me is they actually want to learn from, from me. And then secondly, for Piano in 21 Days, it's how quickly you can learn. I mean, that's that's baked right into the brand name. Uh, and I knew that was always one of my unique selling points. And that's why we put the number of days in the brand name. And then the third thing is that it's just so different from the traditional way to learn piano because we have no sheet music. There's not a lot of music theory or drills. And a lot of people have taken piano lessons, especially like as a kid and always regretted not actually learning how to play. So you have that past experience with some form of learning how to play that didn't necessarily work. So when they see how my approach is different and maybe a more refreshing take on it, it really resonates with them. Now, how did you decide on the pricing structure? What factors go into deciding how to price your online course? It's not easy. For sure, it's not easy. I knew that I wanted to be on the higher side of pricing for a few reasons. One is I'm proud of my work. I spent a lot of time putting it out and I want to I want to convey that and show that. I think a higher price can convey uh, a higher value in what you're offering. And I certainly stand behind my product, but I also want a high success rate of the people that go through and just people raving about my program. So... What we offer is not 100% passive income or anything. We have like we interact with our students. We offer a weekly Q&A, live Q&A. We offer email support to them. We have a community and so on. And it takes a few more resources to be able to pull that off. So that's another reason we charge higher prices and, and have higher value. So we started at $97, very quickly moved up to $297, and then $497. And now today, our most popular option is... 797 so right at $800. And I've also noticed, because we've been at a lot of different price points, that I've noticed that the higher the price so far, I mean, I'm sure there's limits on it, but the higher the price, we get higher quality students. Um, they're less needy, less refund requests, and they get better results, like higher success rates at the higher price point. So I've heard people say uh, that's the, the phrase, like when people pay, they pay attention. And from my experience, that's been very true. Can you talk about the psychology of the 97 to 97, you know, as opposed to 100, $300? Somebody a long time ago told me that sevens were magic. And I just, I just listened to that. You know, the normal pricing, I say normal would, would end in like a nine instead of a seven because, because, you know, you use the word psychology, 99, 97 just sounds a lot better and cheaper and a better deal than a hundred dollars. I'm sure there's research to support that, but I don't know if there's true research to support the whole seven versus nine thing. So this is going to bring us to a section of our show that we call our Fan Blitz questions. So these come from our YouTube community. Those of you out there listening, go find Upflip on YouTube, join our community and post questions to future podcast guests. For these, we're going to try and get through about six questions in about one or two minutes. So we're going to go rapid fire here. Are you ready? Ready. Let's do it. Nick Epic is asking, what's the best strategy to find customers? 
you got to put a lot of free content out there and see what resonates and with who. The Rebel Avec Rebecca is asking, how do you market and attract new clients? Well, we, we primarily use YouTube. And then in the past year or so, we've really focused on uh, our thumbnails on YouTube. Those are becoming especially important. And then also just keeping viewers' attention throughout the entire length of the video. East Kitchen uh, would like to know, and you, you, you've alluded to this a little bit, what's a good platform to put your courses on? Oh, that's easy. Kajabi. What was the deciding moment in your previous job, which made you say, yep, never doing this again? Probably like the 30th time where I got awoken in the middle of the night with some emergency that I had to, to deal with. What's the worst name that you could have given to your business? Something like Piano for Left-Handed Redheads. Uh, because <laughs> it's a good thing to like niche down and 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 not be super broad. But it, if you're going to do that, it needs to be relevant too. And and uh, marketing to left-handed redheads to learn piano—that that's not relevant. It's super niche, but it's not relevant. That's going to do it for our fan blitz questions. Again, these come from our YouTube community. Go find Upflip on YouTube. Join the community, and you too can pose questions to future podcast guests. Jacques, I'm curious about monthly overhead for running a course. Can you talk about ongoing costs for a course once it's up? Sure. So I mentioned Kajabi a couple of times. That's about $150. I like other tools as well that just that, that give you some additional just things you can do, d- additional features like Deadline Funnel. We use that for evergreen urgency and, and deadlines. It's $50 a month or so. We use Bonjoro, which is allows us to very easily send a personal video to everybody that signs up for our course. Uh, so we spend, and there's other things, and we spend $300 or so, maybe $350 in software. And then the majority of our expenses... We would be spent on people. Uh, we have a team of six people, four are full-time and two are part-time. They're all over the world. And then we spend a little, we spend a little bit of money on ads as well. Uh, but organic traffic is definitely top over paid traffic. And with ads, you know, the problem is you obviously need to, you need to make more money with the sale than you spend on the actual ad. So we, we spend a little bit of that, do that profitably, but most of our traffic comes from, uh, from organic. But those are the big categories of expenses we have. I'm glad you mentioned your your team there because I, I'm curious, how long was the course up and running before you started building out that team? And what was that first role that you hired into? Team is uh, pretty pretty important. Having good people on your team is is really great. And having bad people on your team is equally not as great. For me, it was a couple of years in before I decided to outsource because I, I just liked having that control and I fought it for a long time. But around 2015, all the rage was hiring a full-time VA in the Philippines. Uh, so I did... I did just that. And so uh, this girl came and worked for me for 40 hours a week, even though I really didn't have 40 hours of work for her every week. I didn't realize at the time that you could actually just as easily hire part-time workers all over the world. So in 2017, I hired a part-time person to help me with customer support because I found I was spending all my time in my email inbox answering pre-sale questions and post-sale questions from from students. So I hired that person. Then I hired a 10-hour-a-week video editor, a five-hour-a-week graphic designer. And all three of those people are still with me today, still working those same amount of hours and have been for for years now. It's been great. And then if you fast forward to today, we also have a full-time operations manager and a full-time student success manager. So there's uh, six of us total that includes myself. So four of which only work for me and then two have other clients as well. Hiring that distributed workforce can be a particular challenge. What tips do you have about finding and hiring the right people for that online course team in, in a distributed way? 
Well, if you have an online course that you've made sales and you have students, what I've found is the best pool of candidates to hire from is, is those people because they've, they're clearly already bought into you and, and what you're trying to accomplish and are familiar with your niche. That's that's exactly how I hired one of one of our most recent hires, our, our operations manager. And it's been great because he's already passionate about the same things we're passionate about. He understands our culture and everything. So that's a great way to go. And I've seen a lot of people succeed with that as well, but not everybody has made sales yet or have, has a big enough pool to be able to tie into for that. And so in addition to your own audience, for us, we, we use Upwork. Upwork is fantastic. Uh, we found full-time people in Upwork as well as you know majority part-time people, but all over the world. And man, we've, we've, we've made a lot of hires there. And what I've found is on Upwork, there's a lot of people posting jobs and there's, there's good people applying to jobs. There's bad people applying to jobs too. And so... I find that if you really, if you show like your, your personality when you're going to look for somebody and show that you're not just like super rigid and full of yourself and, and like to have fun in the workplace too, that really helps attract the right people. And then another thing is to, um, I always say in every Upwork post at the end, I say, Hey, if you, uh, in your application, tell me your favorite color so that I know you, you know, read this whole job post, because what you'll find on places like Upwork, half the people that apply are just mass generically applying. And I want somebody, somebody to truly want to work for us and for me as well. And so that can weed out a lot of bad candidates right from the start. So you've got team members all over the world. You've got customers all over the world. What systems or tools are you using to communicate with all of those different people? For our team, we use Slack for just like text-based chat communication. We use Zoom for our weekly meetings that we have together as a team. And we use Asana for project management. And all of those, like the answer would be like, they're all the gold standard. And I didn't spend much energy trying to see if there was a better alternative. Those are all pretty popular. For my piano students, we used to have a Facebook group for them to interact with each other. But now we use the community feature inside of Kajabi, which has been good because not everybody has Facebook. And then we use Zoom for the weekly Q&As. We also used to use Facebook Live for that as well. But once again, not everybody has Facebook, so we're alienating some of our students. So right now it's the community in Kajabi, email, and then Zoom. You also, in addition to the the main piano course, you also have courses on things like ear training, hand coordination. Do you Are those sold separately or only as part of a package? And what's the logic behind that decision? We choose to do it only as part of a package. And the reason is for simplicity both on our side and for the decision-making on the customer side. We don't want them to be overwhelmed with a lot of buying choices, too many buying options. And so we make it nice and simple. We have two levels they can sign up for. Basically, they can sign up for the course for around $400, or they can sign up for the course plus all the bonuses and all the interaction, like everything we have for $800. You're literally choosing between two things. And then on our side, it's a lot easier to manage that with, it's just a matter of, hey, did this person sign up for the bottom package or the top package? We don't have to go figure out, you know, which which of the, of the eight courses we have did they sign up for? We keep it really simple and simple is definitely my style. You mentioned you use Asana for project management. Do you have any standard operating procedures that you you could share with us about managing workflow and keeping the business organized? Yeah, as far as a, a course business goes, one thing we do like clockwork is, you know, we we have a full-time student success manager is what she's called because that's 
I looked at my whole business one day and I'm like, what, what's the most important thing here? And in my opinion, it's making sure that our students are as successful as possible. And so I kind of put a person in charge of that. And, you know, she answers questions and, and does the majority of the live Q and A's, but she also will proactively reach out to people um, about their, their progress and encourage them and so on. And so we have a, we have a course completion encouragement system. And what that looks like is uh, when somebody, you know, we have, we have 21 days to our course, it's really 21 lessons. They can go through it at, at their own pace, but when they complete day seven, they'll automatically get an email congratulating them for, for doing that. Same thing happens in day 14. But after day 14, everything beyond that is all a manual process of us uh, encouraging them because they're getting so close at that point. So we encourage them, make, making sure they know that um, we're there if we if they need anything. Uh, but we track all of that in Asana, just making sure we're doing the right number of follow-ups, spread out the correct amount. And then once they actually do finish in, within that same system, we encourage them to send us a video of them playing for two reasons. I mean, it's it's proof that they actually did the course, finished the course. And if they do that, we'll send them a little gift in the mail. Um, and then with their permission, we've got a great testimonial video as well. So it encourages them. The whole thing encourages them to actually finish. And, and it allows us to celebrate with them if they actually do and possibly generate a, a video testimonial, which are really important as well. You mentioned uh, some of those automated emails in there. Where else do you use automation in the business and and what things do you recommend making sure to automate to help grow the course's revenue? Our sales funnel is fully automated, as an example. And what that means for us is that we don't need to focus much attention uh, or time on sales. Our sales funnel does the job of taking the lead through a process and gets them to determine if the course is right for them. And that allows us to spend the majority of our time on more marketing or fulfillment if the sales is pretty much completely automated. What does your day-to-day look like in, in working in the course at this point? How many hours are you working in, a, in an average week? I would say only a couple of hours a week on this. Uh, we have uh, a 30 to 60 minute team meeting every week where we, where we touch base with each other. And then once a month, I'll do the Q&A. So our student success manager does it three times a month. I do it once a month and that's about an hour long. And then beyond that, it's just about any marketing content, like a new YouTube video that needs to be made. We all help come up with ideas for those and, and scripting those and outlining those. But then I'm usually the one, like 90% of the time, I'm the one that's, that's on camera filming those videos. Videos. And so on average, with all those things, I would say two to four hours a week for me. You, the, the, the Tim Ferriss four-hour workweek dream right there. You did it. It came to be. Look at that. Uh, when, you, when you were developing the course, you were obviously, uh, you've mentioned working your full-time job still. How did you carve out that time to design and manage the course in those first few years? And what advice do you have for those that want to pivot to course creation, but like you, can't quit the day job until it's up and running successfully? Well, for me, it was really tough. Uh, fortunately, I didn't have any kids at the at the very beginning of this process. I could see the vision for my life that I wanted that helped keep me motivated through the process based on what I read from the four-hour work week. But I definitely... At the time, I didn't take the most efficient path to get to success. I mean, it took a few years. And I think the best advice on that now that I could give is to really focus on one thing at a time. And so what I see is people will go try to start an online course business and they're working on a YouTube channel, Instagram, building a webinar, putting together an offer, putting together the course, like all at the same time. And so what I find is best to, to really focus on one piece at a time. You finish that piece and then move on to the next piece. And that makes all of it, once it comes together at the end, all the better for it. When you had questions or needed advice in the in the early days of the course, where did you turn and 
what resources exist now that you might recommend those with questions should turn to? I'm not sure what gave me the confidence to do this, but one thing I did was I reached out to other who I assumed were successful course creators. Maybe I heard them on a podcast or something. I remember specifically asking a couple of people just via email some questions, and that was really helpful. And then I read some uh, some books too. Uh, Expert Secrets by Russell Brunson was awesome uh, for course creators. Story Brand by Donald Miller. Launch by uh, Jeff Walker. All great books. Uh, I still recommend those books. And then the other thing I'd recommend is the online course show podcast. I'm a little bit biased there because that's the podcast I started a little over five years ago, but it's what I wanted to listen to. It's completely focused on online courses. It's basically conversations with other successful course creators. So, so people don't just have to hear from one niche, you know, one guy piano, because people are succeeding with this stuff in all kinds of niches. I mean, quilting and, and foreign languages. It's really amazing what you can do with an online course. Let's say somebody wants to to start a course, but doesn't quite know what they want to teach. How can they identify what a good course topic would be for them? Okay, so here some questions you can ask yourself first would be, what comes easy for you? What do others say to you that you're good at? Or what do you just love to geek out on? Another thing you can do is, I call it the date experiment, but pretend you're on a first date, it's going horribly. You're not in com- uh, compatible, there, you have little in common, but you're supposed to be hanging out with this person for several more hours. And if I could just wave a magic wand and no matter what topic you pick to talk about next, they would be interested and you could talk about it for hours and you'd completely save the date. What topic comes to mind that would do that for you? Another thing that I've seen work well is you could post, say on social media, you could post this question to other people. I'm thinking about creating an online course. Do you have any guesses what my topic would be? That's a good way to see what people uh, think you're good at. And then just make a list of all the things that come to mind, all the topics that come to mind. And not everything is going to be profitable. If one of one of the things that comes to mind is like you love watching football, well, th- there might not be a, a profitable online course idea there. The way you filter your list from there is you need to look at it from the perspective of your passion and your knowledge, the audience's potential purchasing power. So for example, if you're really good at budgeting and saving money, well, people don't necessarily want to pay to learn how to save money. That kind of goes against it. You, you got to make sure it's a growing market or at least not declining. So hopefully nothing in the you know physical newspaper business, something like that. And then think about the urgency and the size of the problem that you're trying to solve for somebody. And that allows you to get a list of five, 10, 20 things down to just a, a small handful, start to figure out what exactly I'm going to start teaching to somebody else. Are there any niches that are perennially smart choices for creators? And and along with that, any underserved niches or oversaturated topics to avoid? I've had over 100 course creators, successful course creators on my podcast. And I, the, the niches that are out there never cease to amaze me. And so the only things that I see constantly not working for people would be these like very general and broad personal development topics like improve your life, get unstuck, like things like that. I rarely see success when they're just like that broad. And then the other one that just never seems to work out is this is kind of random, but golf, golf online courses, not always very successful. I'd stay away from that one too. If you were starting another course today, what would you do differently than when you first launched Piano in 21 Days? I would start with the audience. I started with, I went straight to creating the course and I would start with the audience. I'd start, if you want specifics, what I would do today is I would start with Instagram Reels. I would put out the short form video content pieces out on Instagram every single day. And I would see what performed best and what kind of questions and comments and DMs people were leaving for me. 
What's the top piece of advice that you'd offer someone who's considering starting an online course? Other than the other than the last answer, what I would add to that would be to err on the side of getting something minimal viable out versus perfectionism. And that's a bad habit that I have is, and I see it a lot too, is you never launch in the pursuit of perfection. And this is not the type of thing that needs to be perfect because you can always update. You can always have a new version of your webinar. You can always have a new version of your course. You can always put out another YouTube video or another Instagram reel or something like that. It's not like if you go to write a book, you want that to be as perfect as possible because then you've got all these printed copies all over the world, theoretically. With an online course business, let's get something minimal and viable out there, get some market feedback, we can always make it better and better. I mean, my course, this is we're, we're on the sixth version of it. And the sixth version would be nowhere near as good as it is now, if not for the first five versions. If you could pick the one thing that someone is going to take away from this interview, what would it be? I think that courses, I, I mean, I love, I love online courses and that can be a great business model. It's it's low upfront costs. It can be uh, high profit margins once you get some some results. But I'm not sure if it's specifically come up uh, at this point, but it's an amazing way to impact other people as well, have a, have, a, have a positive impact on other people all over the world in many cases. Uh, that's one of the things that I didn't love about my job. I, I didn't absolutely hate my job like some people, but I didn't love that I couldn't see the impact of my work. It felt like if I didn't show up for work, like the world, like no, nobody's lives would be any different. But now I get to hear from people all the time, you know, thanking me for 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 my course, for, for my piano lessons. And there's people out there that would have never learned how to play piano if I never put this course out there and being able to see that impact through an online course is truly amazing. What's your favorite business book and why? There's a lot of good books. My favorite would be Four Hour Work Week because of the impact that it had on my situation. It gave me a complete paradigm shift on what entrepreneurship could be. And honestly, I don't I'd probably still be an electrical engineer if I would have never read that book. Jacques, where can people learn more about you and Piano in 21 Days? Well, the website is uh, is is pretty easy to remember. It's pianoin21days.com. And then, like I said, we've got the podcast simply called The Online Course Show. That's going to do it for this episode of the Upflip Podcast. I'd be remiss if I didn't plug Upflip's own course, uh, this one on starting a seven-figure cleaning business. There's also that and a ton more knowledge resources available in the Upflip Hub. Links to both available in the description of this episode. Jacques Hopkins, Piano in 21 Days. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Alex. I really appreciate it. 